All right, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Please find your seats. Good to be back with you. We had a great time on vacation. We were in Florida for a little bit. Thank you for your prayers. We feel um, refreshed by that. Let me pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. You know all things, you determine all things, and you are working perfectly in time and in history to bring your glory, uh, to put your glory on full display before the universe. And we are the beneficiaries of that, those who, us who are called in Christ, and we're so grateful. But Lord, help us as we see more of what you've done and how you use different people, Lord, to understand better the world to be encouraged by what you've done and the faithfulness of the people who've come before us, but also to learn the lessons we need to, Lord, about how we can not fall into the same mistakes, but be faithful as they were. Um, help me to be able to teach this material now, and I pray that your people be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, well, we are back studying church history, early church history. Uh, many thanks to Mark. Don't see him in the room right now, but uh, thanks, Mark, for filling in last week by talking about the Reformation. And I didn't get to announce this before, but originally I said that this series would only be eight lessons, but that was because I was thinking I would finish right before I went on vacation. That didn't happen. But maybe that's God's good providence. Surely it is God's good providence because that means I get to extend the church history series if I wanted to, which is what I'm going to do. We're going to do at least two extra lessons. We'll do 10 whole lessons, and maybe if we have trouble getting through the material, uh, we might do even more. It won't be more than 12, but at least two more lessons. So that way we can meet more of the church fathers in the 4th and 5th centuries. If you remember last time we were together, we were meeting some of those key personalities, those important teachers of the early church, and we started with the apostolic fathers. That is, those who came right after the apostles at the end of the first and into the second century. Well, now we're picking up with the men after them. We're talking about those fathers who emerged in the second century going into the third century. And these have certain titles based on what they focused on, and that's the title of the lesson today, lesson eight, this is the second century apologists and the polemical fathers. Now, why again are we meeting these men, learning about these men? Well, it's kind of like what I prayed. This is so that we can understand origins, where certain ideas and practices in the church came from, so that we can receive encouragement and what God has done and the faithfulness of those who have taught and preached the gospel in the centuries before us but also to receive warning, because not everything that these men did was perfect. But you know what? Like Mark mentioned last week, that's to be expected. Church history is not a record of perfect men and perfect women doing everything perfectly. No, it's imperfect men and women who are just like us, who are powerfully used by a perfect God. And if God can do that in the past, and he did that in the scriptures, and he did that in church history, he can do that with us. And he does do that with us, so we can take comfort and encouragement in that, but we also want to become more useful to our master, which is why we're studying about this and why we want to give attention to the scriptures. Now, as we look at these two new groups of churchmen today, we're going to see a certain theme. I'm not going to finish talking about this theme. We're going to pick it up again next week. But a certain theme that very much intersects with one of the challenges that we face today as Christians in 21st century America. There's a certain challenge, and that challenge is... How should we regard the knowledge and culture 
of the world in which we live. Does the world, in its wisdom, have anything good of which Christians can make use? Or does the world only offer poisonous gifts, corruption, and false knowledge that just harms Christians and harms the church? This issue is not a new one. It's one that Christians have faced since the beginning of the church. And it's a, one that especially comes into focus as we look at these men from the second and third centuries. And we're going to start by talking about the first group, the second century apologists. Now, if you remember, I've already actually mentioned these guys. And second century apologists, um, they were a group of teachers who emerged in the second century primarily to defend Christians in the midst of persecution. Remember the Romans, even some Roman governors, even some Roman emperors, they were violently persecuting Christians or turning a blind eye as mobs were going after Christians. And these men, five of them in particular, Justin Martyr, Tatian the Assyrian, Athenagoras of Athens, Theophilus of Antioch, and Melito of Sardis, they used their skills as uh, former rhetoricians and philosophers to publish public defenses of Christianity, saying what you are saying about us is not true, we're actually good citizens, there's no reason to persecute us. So we've looked at what these men have done before. But I do want to introduce you further to two of the men of this group, tell you a little bit more about them and their legacies, and especially how they regarded culture, the world's culture. And the first one that I want to tell you about is Justin Martyr. So Justin Martyr. Martyr is not his last name. That's just a title that was applied to him because, can you guess why? He was martyred. He was famously martyred by beheading after he had disputed with a cynic philosopher named Crescens. Crescens didn't like what Justin said, reported him to the authorities, and he and other Christians were put to death. Well, Justin was born a Gentile in Judea, but he had traveled quite a bit. And he ended up living and teaching in Rome. From a young age, he pursued learning and philosophy. But he moved from philosophy to philosophy, different schools of philosophy, because each one proved dissatisfying to him. He couldn't find the answers that he was looking for. He ultimately ended up a Platonist philosopher, following the philosophy of Plato. And he continued in that tradition until God arranged a important meeting with an old Christian whom Justin met walking along the seashore. This Christian shared Jesus with Justin and showed that the writings of the prophets and the scriptures were more reliable than any worldly philosophy. This simple witness, combined with the testimonies, that, uh, testimonies of Christians that Justin had seen elsewhere, even Christians being martyred, it caused Justin, God used it to move Justin to renounce secular philosophy and begin teaching, as he called it, the new philosophy of Christ. And he became a powerful witness of the Lord and an apologist. Now, we have three surviving works from Justin Martyr today. What's called his first apology, his second apology, and then his dialogue with Trifo, which is a text depicting Justin using the Old Testament to share Christ with a Jew named Trifo, presented in dialogue form. And you can find these works online for free. Now, incidentally, Justin Martyr is one of the ancient Christians who tells us about early church services. 
Remember that one of the reasons why Romans persecuted Christians is because of all the outrageous rumors of what Christians did in their secret meetings, in their gatherings. So one of the ways that Justin sought to defend Christians was to say, hey, guys, you want to know what we're doing in our meetings? This is what we do. And so if you read his first apology, it actually ends with a description of what a church service looks like. From Justin's account and from other, from the accounts in the first apology, from other things he's written and from what other Christians wrote, we can actually piece together with confidence what a typical church service looked like in the second century. And this probably overlaps with what it looked like in the first century, but this was pretty standard. Wherever you lived in the Roman Empire, this is what Christians did when they gathered. And I'll present it to you in summary format. This actually comes from Nick Needham's 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. He's collected a number of historical sources. What did Christians do when they gathered? Well, they gathered every Sunday, which they called the Lord's Day, for about three hours. And they stood the entire service. There were some chairs or benches that were available on the side of the room, but wouldn't you know it, sitting in church did not become a practice until the 14th century. And that's only in the West. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, they still don't sit in church. It was normal to stand. So three hours standing, and the service was divided into two main portions. You had the service of the word, and you had the Eucharist. The service of the word, and you can see the details on the slide there, the service of the word mainly consisted of a few scripture readings and songs, culminating in a sermon from the presiding elder or bishop, who interestingly preached sitting down. So everybody else is standing, he sits down. Remember, this is the normal teaching posture at that time. Jesus often taught sitting down. So he preaches. At the end of the sermon, all unbaptized persons are dismissed, and the Eucharist portion of the service begins. This portion, oh, oh, I should also mention, you might be wondering, apparently the early church was very cautious with new converts. Uh, They certainly welcomed people who were interested in in knowing Jesus and and getting baptized, but didn't happen right away. Baptism candidates often had to go through a full year of instruction before being baptized, which I feel like is kind of hilarious because we elders sometimes talk about how long our, you know, members of our baptism classes are, but at least we're not as long as the the second century church where it's whole year. But, you know, they wanted to make sure that these people really understood what they were signing up for. And baptisms usually took place on Easter. Anyways, so the Eucharist portion, you can see the details again on the slide, but it mainly consisted of prayers, the offering of bread and wine from all the members. So actually the elements of communion are supplied by the members each Sunday, and then they celebrate communion together. And the service, with the service concluded, the Christians then gather for what they called an agape feast, a love feast, and it was a sober but celebratory meal of fellowship, and it would also include prayer and singing. Agape feasts would be a normal part of Sunday worship through the 5th century. And they would begin to tail off in the 6th century, and they would pretty much disappear in the 8th century. So it's actually part of church services or Sunday, Sunday activities for a long time. Now, if you look at those elements or you hear that summary, you may notice their service is a little different than what we do, but in many ways, it's the same. The same elements are all there. Scripture reading, singing, preaching, praying, giving, communion, and fellowship. We're more than 1,800 years later. 
Now, why do you think we do the same things? Is it just tradition? Yeah, Steve. Not just Acts 2.42, but basically these elements, those seven elements, are what we see both by example and by command in the scriptures. It's not as if we're just like, oh, you know, that's what they did. We'll do the same thing. These are the things that we see in the Bible. So it should be encouraging to us as we interpret the scriptures and say, well, these are the things that we should do in our church service, that our early brethren interpreted the Bible the same way. They said, well, yeah, we should do the same things in our service. Maybe did it in a slightly different order, in a slightly different way, but it was the same thing because that's what the scripture teaches. So that should be an encouragement to us. Now, besides telling us about early church services, Justin Martyr is also notable in his legacy regarding Christianity and culture, how he saw Christians should engage with the culture. As a former philosopher, Justin saw secular philosophy and culture as useful in some regards for pointing to the truth of the gospel. He would especially argue that secular philosophers and their writings, they are clearly able to recognize certain truths about God and the world, but their understanding is incomplete. Christians, therefore, can bring the gospel to complete the understanding of what philosophers and others in the world are grasping at but can't quite get. Philosophy only begins what the gospel completes. So Justin, in his evangelistic efforts, he would sometimes use Greco-Roman philosophical concepts to reach the people around him. And let me give you an example from his first apology. This is chapter 20. Justin speaking. If therefore on some points we Christians teach the same things as the poets and philosophers whom you honor, and on other points are fuller and more divine in our teaching, and if we alone afford proof of what we assert, why are we unjustly hated more than others? More than all others. For while we say that all things have been produced and arranged into a world by God, we shall seem to utter the doctrine of Plato. And while we say that there will be a burning up of all, we shall seem to utter the doctrine of the Stoics. Uh, this is just a small excerpt here, but notice how Justin is able to make two assertions in just these sentences. First, it makes no sense for you Romans to persecute Christians for what we believe and teach. Why not? We're basically teaching the same things that different philosophers among you have taught. You don't persecute them. Why do you persecute us? You should stop doing that. But second, Justin is able to assert that Christians are superior. The Christian message is superior to anything the philosophers and poets have taught because what do Christians have that secular writers do not? Now, it's the Christ and the truth, but what does he specifically say? He says, we have something that's fuller and more divine, and we have proof. What proof? I mean, it certainly connects with the resurrection, but this comes down to the word of God. This is the proof of the scriptures. Justin would later explain in another part of his apology that the Old Testament prophets are much older and more reliable than anything written by the Greeks. Look, this message doesn't just come out of nowhere and kind of sounds good. It's been proven again and again. 
But God's saying certain things would happen, and they happen, obviously culminating with the coming of Christ and his resurrection. So this is Justin's view. Secular wisdom and culture is sometimes useful, so don't feel like you just have to get rid of it all, but the Bible is fuller and more divine. Christians don't need knowledge outside the Bible to prove the Bible, but where culture says the same thing as the Bible, Justin would say, use it. Use it as a tool for the gospel. Okay. Now, this view of how to engage with secular culture, pagan culture, is very different from one of Justin Martyr's fellow apologists, his view. And that apologist's name is Tatian the Assyrian. Tatian was actually a student of Justin Martyr. And like Justin, he was a former philosopher who ultimately came, came away dissatisfied from what the world offered in its philosophies. We have two surviving texts from Tatian, the Diatessaron and his apology to the Greeks. Tatian spent a lot of time in Rome, just like Justin, but he returned to Syria near the end of his life. Sadly, when Tatian went to Syria, that's when he actually kind of moved away from sound doctrine. Fell into heresy. He founded a legalistic sect of Christian Gnosticism. But the Lord still used Tatian in a very beneficial way for the church. He has two legacies that are particularly important for us to identify and appreciate today. The first is Tatian's work, the Diatessaron. What is this? It's a harmony of the Gospels. It's the first one that was produced. And this work is significant because First of all, in this harmony, Tatian only used Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which affirms what? That these are the Gospels. These are the canonical Gospels. There are no other Gospel records other than these, because otherwise they'd be included in the harmony. So that's significant. It's an affirmation of the canonicity, the unique canonicity of these books. But also, this work is significant because by creating this documentation showed that the gospel accounts, which are different, they can be harmonized. They are not actually contradictory as some people claimed in the early centuries and some people still claim today. Hey, Matthew contradicts John and Mark contradicts Luke. Not really. These things can be harmonized. Interestingly, the diatessaron would be the version of the gospel that people would read up until the 5th century. It's not like they would just pick up Matthew or pick up Mark, they usually picked up this harmony, the diatessaron. So thank the Lord for that, the Atation. Atation's other important legacy is his view of how to engage with worldly knowledge and culture. And despite being Justin's student, Tatian took the opposite view of his mentor. Listen to a few excerpts from Tatian in his Apology to the Greeks. Chapter 2. Oh, this had been written 155, 165 A.D. What noble thing have you Greeks produced by your pursuit of philosophy? Who of your most eminent men has been free from vain boasting? Chapter 3. Wherefore, be not led away by the solemn assemblies of philosophers, who are no philosophers, who dogmatize one against the other, though each one vents but the crude fancies of the moment. They have, moreover, many collisions among themselves. Each one hates the other. They indulge in conflicting opinions, and their arrogance makes them eager for the highest places. It would better become them, moreover, not to pay court to kings unbidden, nor to flatter men at the head of affairs, but to wait 
so the great ones come to them. Okay, it's got a number of critiques against philosophers and philosophy. Well, why, according to Tatian, should people not listen to philosophers? Yeah, they're just arrogant. They're just, they're just trying to make themselves look good. They want high position. Why else? Where do they get their teachings? It does uh, essentially come from them, but he says they're arguing according to the fancy of the moment. What does that mean? What? Yeah, they're just arguing what's trendy. Ooh, I've got this new teaching, but really there's no substance to it. It's just what everybody's saying is popular. They don't really have anything new to say, anything useful to say. And moreover, if philosophy is so... Um, so reliable, so trustworthy, why is it that your philosophers can't agree with each other? They get into violent disputes with one another. How useful is this kind of knowledge if nobody can actually agree on what's true? And then we have this from chapter 22 of his work. Tatian again. I have no mind to stand agape at a number of singers nor do I desire to be affected in sympathy with a man when he is winking and gesticulating in an unnatural manner. What wonderful or extraordinary thing is performed in the theater among you? They utter ebaldry in affected tones and go through indecent movements. Your daughters and your sons behold them giving lessons in adultery on the stage. Admirable places forsooth are your lecture rooms where every base action perpetrated by night is proclaimed aloud, and the hearers are regaled with the utterance of infamous discourses. Admirable too, are your mendacious poets, who by their fictions beguile their hearers from the truth. You can hear a lot of zeal coming through here. So not only does Tatian condemn Greco-Roman teaching and philosophy, but also what? Theaters lecture rooms, uh, singing, poetry. What's this? Yeah, the arts, entertainment, what would be considered culture. He says this also has nothing to it. It's wicked. Essentially, Tatian's message to the pagan Romans, Greco-Romans, is look, nothing good comes from your culture and knowledge. Your society is bankrupt. And you're condemning Christians as being the wicked ones? Do we not act honorably and soberly before you? You are the ones that need to change. You need the gospel. You're being deceived by the teaching and culture that is all around you. Now, there's a lot of truth to what Tatian was teaching. But it's interesting, when you see these kind of excerpts, when you hear these kind of words from Tatian, what happens to him later it kind of makes more sense. Because he was so zealous, Tatian's fall into legalistic heresy becomes more understandable. His Gnostic sect would forbid marriage, eating meat, drinking wine. Why do you think he taught these unbiblical practices in the end? Exactly. I think um, Mike is exactly right. He was so zealous to get away from sin and worldliness, it went too far to the other end. There was a, maybe a noble motivation, but 
and went off the rails. More we could say about Tatian, but I have to do for now. From just these two apologists, we see two competing legacies being set forth in the second century. On the one hand, we have Christians who want to affirm aspects of secular culture for the sake of the gospel. And on the other hand, we have Christians who want to reject and expose not just parts of secular culture, but all of secular culture for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of holiness. These competing legacies would have followers in the next group of fathers whom we call the polemical fathers. Now, do any of you know what polemical means? It comes from the Greek word polemos, meaning war. And that's what these men are all about. They were church leaders engaged in a war of words, a war for the truth. That is, they were upholding sound doctrine against heresy. They were particularly concerned with fighting heresy. And as we've already seen in previous lessons, this is very much needed in the church because even before the apostles left, serious heresies are emerging in different pockets of the church, even denying the gospel. Oops, yes, okay. I've got five polemical fathers to introduce to you. We've mentioned the names of many of these men before. The first one is Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria. Don't get your Clements confused. We've already met a Clement of Rome. He's an apostolic father in the first century. This is Clement of Alexandria. He's a polemical father in the second century. Now, this Clement was a Christian leader in Egypt. He was a teacher of what was called Alexandria's catechetical school. So he's teaching uh, new believers sound doctrine. He's um, teaching against heresy, showing where the heretics are wrong. So we appreciate his faithfulness in that way. Though it doesn't seem like he was actually uh, a clergyman. He didn't seem to be a bishop or have an official position in the church. Nevertheless, he, wasn't, he was a faithful Christian teacher. In terms of background, he came from pagan parents, but he ultimately rejected Roman religion due to its moral corruption. Like some of the other men we've met, he went traveling to go find the truth, and in his travels, he likely ran into uh, some of the men that we've even mentioned, the second century apologists, like Tatian, Athenagoras, and it was talking with these men, or men who were similar to them, that led to his conversion. We have four surviving works from Clement of Alexandria today. Exhortation to the Heathen, Pedagogus, which means the instructor, Stromata, which means miscellaneous things, and who is the rich man who shall be saved? Again, these are available online. We also have a few fragments of other writings. Now, Clement of Alexandria was a faithful teacher of God's truth, but he does have two slightly problematic legacies that have affected the church. First, and, and that I'll highlight for you. First, Tatian was an advocate of using Greek culture and philosophy in Christianity, and even more so than Justin was. Justin saw pagan philosophy as a tool for the spread of the gospel. Yeah, you can sometimes affirm certain concepts, but show that, hey, it doesn't really take you all the way. Clement went much further. He thought that Greco-Roman philosophy complemented the gospel and should be taught alongside the gospel. It should be integrated with the gospel. Clement was a particular fan of Plato and his philosophy. And he ended up teaching, Clement ended up teaching a kind of Christian Platonism. Now, what is Platonism? 
That will be hard to explain briefly. There are many facets to Plato's philosophy. Plato lived in 4th, 5th century BC. But Platonism at its core is the belief that this material world is not the real world. It's a shadow of some other perfect world that is real. This perfect world is kind of like the intellectual world, the spiritual world. That's the real world. The material world is not the real world. It's like a sub-world. We have things in this world, like chairs, kings, love, but these are imperfect versions of the ideal form that exists in this different world, this perfect world. Plato, if you've ever heard about his teaching, is all about the forms. The highest, most important forms, they are in this other world. And the highest form, according to Plato, is the form of the good. It's all about the good, the perfect form of the good, which exists in that other world. And we only have a, like a, a shadow and, a, and a, de a derivation from that in our world. The form, of the, girl, the form of the good is what people should focus on. Because it is from this form, Plato taught, that everything else comes into being and comes into knowledge. So that's my best attempt at a summary from Plato. Don't focus on the material world. Focus on the immaterial world and especially the form of the good. Now, from my summary, you may notice there are some overlaps, some intersections between Platonism and Christianity. Clement saw this, but he didn't see this as mere like incidental overlaps, but actually something that fits so well together that both should be taught as true. He essentially would teach Christian Platonism. And this mixing of Platonism with Christianity by Clement and by others, it would actually affect Christianity in a, in a substantial way. All of Christianity even all of Western culture, would be affected by Christian Platonism for hundreds of years. And I would argue Christianity is still being affected by this thinking today. And one example of that is people who are very suspicious of material things, enjoying the material world. Oh, no, that's, that's wicked, or that's useless. But, of course, books like Ecclesiastes would say, no, 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 you've gone too far. Yeah, don't worship the things of the world, but these are meant from... Or these are meant by God for us to enjoy. But that suspicion, that um, contempt for the material world, it's Platonistic. And it's found its way into the church. Anyways, so this is something that we have received somewhat problematically from Clement of Alexandria. And a related legacy is Clement's promotion of the allegorical hermeneutic for interpreting the Bible. Now, you may remember that a few weeks ago I told you about how Alexandria, Egypt, so that's a city on the coast of Egypt, very important city at that time, Alexandria, Egypt became a Christian center for allegorical interpretation, making various parts of the scripture and interpreting them in a symbolic way. Clement is one of the teachers who helped establish that tradition in Alexandria. And in some ways this is not surprising. If Clement admired Greek culture and philosophy as much as he appears to have done, it makes sense that he would either knowingly or unknowingly adopt a popular Greek style of interpretation. Allegorical hermeneutic is very much tied up with Greek culture. Why were the Greeks so prone 
to allegorical interpretation. Well, if you think about it, in Greco-Roman culture and religion, religion in particular, their sacred texts, the ones that are supposed to instruct them on, on what reality is, how you are to live in it, how you are to worship and satisfy the gods, if their sacred texts are full of the gods committing rape, incest, murder, cannibalism, and other evil acts, how can a Greco-Roman not admit that their religion is totally bankrupt? This is what our gods are doing? And they're supposed to show us how we live? Well, there is one way out. How can you redeem those sacred texts that seem to present such evil acts from the gods? You turn it all into symbolism. It's all an allegory. No, 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 no. Zeus is not teaching us evil ways to act. Uh, Poseidon and these other gods, they're not, they're not showing us evil things. It's a symbol. There's a deeper meaning. There's an allegory there. This is what many Greeks did. Tatian, to jump back over to him for a second, he actually points out the ridiculousness, the folly of the Greeks attempting to save their sacred text by allegory. Uh, listen to something that he writes also in his Apology to the Greeks. This is Tatian, not Clement, Tatian. For what reason is Hera, who's queen of the gods, now never pregnant? Has she grown old? Or is there no one to give you information? Believe me now, O Greeks, and do not resolve your myths and gods into allegory. If you attempt to do this, the divine nature is held by you, is overthrown by your own selves. For if the demons, that is the spiritual powers, with you are such as they are said to be, they are worthless as to character. If these things are literally true, these gods are evil and you should have nothing to do with them. Or if regarded as symbols of the powers of nature, they are not what they are called. If you're saying it's all symbolic, then you don't know anything. Because what you tell me about your gods is not true. If it doesn't mean what it says, it doesn't mean anything. But if it means what it says, you got to get away from those gods. So you Greeks don't have any excuse. And that was Tatian's critique. So this was the only real way that Greeks could defend their depraved gods, their sorry religion. It's by saying that it's all allegory. It's all symbolic. And this kind of interpretation was popular among the pagans at Alexandria, and it became popular with some Jews as well. If you've ever heard of Philo of Alexandria, he was a famous Jewish teacher towards the um, second century BC, and he also taught allegorical interpretation of the, of the Old Testament scriptures. Well, Christians in Alexandria and other places, places, they also learned this style of interpretation. And we saw it already in the Epistle of Barnabas, which was produced in Alexandria in the late first century, beginning of the second century. And Clement of Alexandria, he continued the promotion of the allegorical hermeneutic in his writings. In fact, if you look at the works of Clement that survived today, you see this kind of interpretation all over the place. And I'll give you an example. This comes from book two of his Pedagogus. In this section, he's trying to promote moderation when Christians drink wine. And listen to how he teaches it. Use a little wine, says the apostle to Timothy, who drank water, for thy stomach's sake. Most properly, applying its aid as a strengthening tonic suitable to a sickly body enfeebled with watery humors. 
specifying a little, lest the remedy should, on account of its quantity, unobserved, create the necessity of other treatment. Hey, that makes sense. Clement, we are tracking together. But wait, there's more. The natural, temperate, and necessary beverage, therefore, for the thirsty, is water. This was the simple drink of sobriety, which, flowing from the smitten rock, was supplied by the Lord to the ancient Hebrews. It was most requisite that in their wanderings they should be temperate. Uh, I think you're reading a little too much into that, uh, Clement. Afterwards, the sacred vine produced the prophetic cluster. This was a sign to them when trained from wandering to their rest, representing the great cluster, the word, bruised for us. The blood of the grape, that is the word, desired to be mixed with water as his blood is mingled with salvation. Okay, wait a second. What is this prophetic cluster of grapes that Clement is referring to? Well, eventually it's going to connect with Jesus, but he's starting with the wilderness wandering, and he said they had water smitten from a rock, and that was good because God wanted them to be temperate, but then they got this grape cluster. Where did that come from? Uh... Yes, so I think that's what Steve was referring to. The, the big, giant cluster of grapes that the spies brought back from the promised land. He says, that was prophetic. And actually, it was a sign. It was a, a sign of Jesus, the word, and his shedding his blood for him, blood, blood for his people. And so, when you mix water with wine, which you should do because you want to be moderate, what theological reality are you actually representing from the Bible, according to Clement? Jesus' blood being mixed with our salvation. Okay, um, that sounds really impressive, very spiritual, but how do we know that that symbol really is meant by God in the Bible? You don't. There's no way you can point to various things in the text and be like, this proves that this was all a symbol that, that Paul was actually trying to communicate to Timothy in, uh, in the letters to Timothy. This is the problem with allegorical interpretation. It was the problems with the Greeks, which Tatian rightly pointed out, and it's the problem with Christian allegorical interpretation. Once you assert that the plain meaning in context is not the real meaning, how does one determine the meaning? The only answer is, according to the whims and fancies and reason of the interpreter. And we have a name for that. Technical term, it's eisegesis. It's when you read meaning into the text rather than draw the meaning out of the text that the author intended. And many well-meaning Christians in history and today do this, have done this. In the name of spirituality, in the name of the gospel, in the name of Jesus, they will assert a symbolic interpretation to a passage and they end up making the Bible say what they want it to say. Now, sometimes this allegorical interpretation, it doesn't result in anything that's terrible, that's heretical. I mean, when we look at this example, uh, promoting moderation and drinking alcohol, that's a fine thing. That's not heresy. But other instances of allegorical interpretation would be much more serious. And certainly it obscures the original meaning of the text. And what we're going to see later on, especially when we get with origin, is that it makes the spiritual meaning, the symbolic meaning, the only one that you really care about. Suddenly the other meaning is 
uh, that, that's for people who are not well initiated. There is something attractive to allegorical interpretation. If somebody tells you, wait, there's a deeper meaning and I can show it to you, like you say, oh, oh, I want to know about that. And then when you learn, like, oh, I got to find that in other places too. But actually, it's, it's not really presenting something of value. It did become popular in the early church, in certain sections of the early church, especially in Alexandria, and Clements is one of the people who promoted it. And he would have a strong influence on another guy that I just mentioned, Origen, who became a huge promoter of the allegorical hermeneutic. And we'll get to Origen later. So Clement, faithful guy, taught sound doctrine, but he did also promote allegorical interpretation and the integration of Greek philosophy with Christianity. But just as with the other two apologists that we met, there was another second century polemical father who took the opposite stance on uh, culture and hermeneutics as Clement, and that's the man Tertullian. I've introduced him to you before when we're talking about uh, the Trinity. Tertullian of Carthage, so think of that city in modern Tunisia, North Africa. Don't know too much about Tertullian. We know that he was not a church leader officially, but he was a very prominent Christian writer. He was likely a trained orator and perhaps a lawyer because he uses a lot of legal language in his writings and a lot of legal analogies. He was prolific in his writing. We have many works of his which survive, too many for me to list on one slide. He was the earliest church father to write in Latin, and that became the dominant language in the western half of the Roman Empire. I think I mentioned previously, he coined many terms and phrases in Latin that have found their way into our own language, like the word Trinity. So he was one of those. He did apologetic works like the second century apologist, but he's especially known for contending for sound doctrine against heresy. He especially wrote against Marcionism. If you remember Marcion, he's that guy who said there are two gods in the Bible, the, the New Testament God's trying to save us in the Old Testament God. Tertullian wrote a lot against Marcion, a lot against other heresies, and he um, was very faithful in promoting sound doctrine for many decades of his life. But strangely, Tertullian himself joined a heretical sect towards the end of his life. He joined the Montanists with their new prophecy. Now, the main legacy I want to highlight for you from Tertullian, he did a lot of good things, and we received a lot of benefit from him, but the one thing I want to highlight for you today is his view on Greek culture and philosophy. He took a very negative view. If Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria saw Greek culture as a positive, Tertullian aligned with Tatian in totally decrying the pagan and secular culture that was around Christians at that time. Listen to part of Tertullian's work, Prescription Against Heresies, this is chapter 7. This appears right after a section where he argues that many of the recent heresies that have affected the church, the Marcionism and Gnosticism and um, Monarchianism, they've sprung from Greek philosophical ideas. Greek philosophy provided the equipment, Tertullian says, for Christian heresies. And then look what else he says. From philosophy come those fables and endless genealogies and fruitless questionings, those words that creep like as doth a canker. So he's quoting the scripture there. 
to hold us back from such things, the apostle testifies expressly in his letter to the Colossians that we should beware of philosophy. Take heed, lest any man circumvent you through philosophy or vain deceit after the tradition of men, against the providence of the Holy Ghost. He, that's the apostle Paul, had been at Athens, where he had come to grips with the human wisdom which attacks and perverts truth, being itself divided up into its own swarm of heresies by the variety of its mutually antagonistic sects. So he's saying something similar to Tatian. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens, the church with the academy, the Christian with the heretic? Our principles come from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord is to be sought in simplicity of heart. I have no use for a Stoic or a Platonic or a dialectic Christianity. After Jesus Christ, we have no need of speculation. After the gospel, no need of research. When we come to believe, we have no desire to believe anything else. For we begin by believing that there is nothing else which we have to believe. And there's a lot of truth to what Tertullian wrote as well. We appreciate his zealous contending for the faith. But you see, we have these competing legacies from both the second century apologists and the polemical fathers. Some saying that worldly knowledge and culture can offer good for Christians, and others warning against, don't look for good, you're just going to end up in heresy and error. But it's interesting that the ones who are most strict about warning against worldly influence, they fell into error themselves. We saw the citation, saw the Tertullian. I think there's something instructive about that. But does that mean that the side of being more open to worldly culture, even embracing worldly culture and knowledge, is safer? Well, wait till we talk about our last polemical father, Origen. We'll see where that led him. We actually can't talk about him today. We'll have to wait till next week. Sorry to give you that cliffhanger. But I do have two other men that I want to talk to you about before we finish today. But keep that in the back of your mind. These early fathers are provoking us to think, how should we engage as Christians with our pagan, secular, non-Christian culture? There are certainly problems with just adopting what they say. But there can also be problems with being so separatist as to fall into a, a unique heresy of your own. Anyway, keep that in the back of your mind. The next polemical father I want to introduce to you is Irenaeus. You probably remember his name as well. One of the hardest church fathers to spell his name correctly consistently. I always get those vowels mixed up. Irenaeus of Lyon, he was a disciple of Polycarp and a bishop or presiding elder in Gaul, which is modern-day France. They called it Gaul at that time. His surviving text consists of his five-volume work against heresies, and then we have other fragments. So, Definitely, you can see even from the surviving text, he's a polemical father. He's contending for the truth, holding up the gospel, uh, and showing where the heretics have departed from the faith. It's possible Irenaeus was also the writer of Polycarp's original martyrdom account. We read through part of that before. Now, against heresies, that work is primarily a defense against Valentinian Gnosticism, if you remember that one. That's that like weird mythology mixed with Christianity. There are all these gods, and there's like uh, an emanation that resulted in creation and all sorts of weird stuff. But if you don't recall all that, that's okay. Just remember that the Gnostics are all about secret knowledge about God and the universe. It's kind of similar to Mormonism. 
Salvation is really about obtaining this secret knowledge and by that, ascending into godhood in some way. Well, in defending against this strange heresy, Irenaeus leaves us an important legacy about the exclusive canonicity of the New Testament. Listen to a few excerpts from Irenaeus. This is some things he says about the canonicity of the Gospels. This is from book three of his Against Heresies. But it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. Since there are four zones of the world in which we live and four principal winds, while the church has been scattered throughout the world, and since the pillar and ground of the church is the gospel and the spirit is life, and the spirit of life, it is fitting that she should have four pillars, breathing incorruption on every side and vivifying, that is, making alive, human, afresh. From this fact, it is evident that the Logos, the fashioner, Demiurgos, or craftsman of all, he that sits on the cherubim and holds all things together when he was manifested to humanity, gave us the gospel under four forms, but bound together by one spirit. Okay, so his justification for why there are four Gospels exactly is a little bit maybe a stretch. He says it's because there are four winds and four corners of the world. Okay, but get the main idea. He affirms that we do, in fact, have four canonical Gospels, and that this is fitting. God wanted us to have a fully orbed witness that is different and yet harmonious about the Logos, about the Messiah, about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you're wondering why does he use terms like Logos and Demiurgos, well, those were terms that the Gnostics were often used, even the Valentinians that he's contending against. So he's, he's trying to set the record straight. No, this is who the Logos is, and this is who the Demiurge is. Demiurge is just another term for the creator, the craftsman. So he says, no, we have four Gospels from God. And notice also what Irenaeus says about the origin of revelation from God. Generally, I've actually heard this quote before. We have received the disposition of our salvation by no others, but by those whom the gospel, but those by whom the gospel came to us, which they then preached, and afterwards by God's will delivered to us in the scriptures. Those who brought the gospel. Who are the only source of revelation about God outside the Old Testament? It's going to be the apostles. We hold to the revelation of the apostles. And where do we find it? What would you say? In the Bible. In the scriptures. So he says, we don't listen to anybody else. We hold on to what the apostles have to say. They have the most Where we find the well, listen to something else that Irenaeus says. And this specifically sending into eternal fire those who 
generation of the apostles. Maybe it doesn't sound a lot like the Apostles' Creed. Oh yeah, it does sound like the Apostles' Creed. This is basically a summary of what Scripture teaches. And this is significant. What Irenaeus is essentially saying is that the oral tradition of the apostles is the same as the written tradition. You say, oh, we have the oral tradition in addition to the written tradition. Well, they are one and the same. The oral tradition is not going to be different from the written tradition. It is the teaching of Scripture. Nearly church held the apostles with great esteem, as we've seen. If the apostles said it, they wrote it down because they didn't want to lose or forget what the apostles said. The oral tradition, it coincides with the written tradition, and really it became the written tradition. So when you hear Roman Catholics or others talk about some revelation, some tradition that they received from the apostles, but it's not written down in the scriptures, well, really, you have Irenaeus, standing with you and testifying that there's no other revelation from God, there's no other authority from God other than that was written down from the apostles and their associates in the Bible. If it doesn't agree with that, it's not from the apostles. If it's not contained in the scripture, if it cannot be justly inferred from the scripture, it's not apostolic. Really, Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and others who claim that there's some extra tradition that's authoritative, they actually align themselves, not with Irenaeus, but with the Gnostics that he was writing against. And many other Christian cults who assert that there is some secret knowledge that you don't have in the scriptures, but that is authoritative, even from the apostles, but it's only known by this secret group. That's not the tradition that we hold to. We hold to the tradition of the apostles that are given to us in the scriptures. Now, the churches did articulate this tradition often in a, a creed or a summary of faith. So, Mike, you mentioned that it sounds like the Apostles' Creed. Many churches at this time did have summary statements of faith, which they even called the apostolic tradition. But that's just a summary of what's the written tradition. It's really no different from it. So, when you think of Irenaeus, Think of the affirmation of the apostolic writings of Scripture as the only source of revelation from God apart from the Old Testament. So contending faithfully, and we benefited today. We still benefit from that. Finally, and I'm going to have to kind of summarize this last father more than I would like, we have Cyprian of Carthage. So moving into the 3rd century now. Who's Cyprian? Oh, Cyprian was a bishop also in Carthage, in North Africa during the middle of the 3rd century. We heard a little bit about him before, if you remember, when we are talking about the persecution of the church and people fleeing from persecution because that's what Cyprian did. When persecution broke out under Decius in the mid-3rd century, Cyprian fled. He got criticized for that, but he maintained that he wasn't doing anything wrong. While away from Carthage, where persecution was most severe, Cyprian continued to minister to his flock through a faithful deacon who served as a go-between. Now, Cyprian's surviving writings, they include a number of letters and works that have been collected into volume three and four of the Patrologia Latina, that is a collection of Latin writings from a number of church fathers. Cyprian's writings are included in that. But Cyprian's most famous work is his text, The Unity of the Church. And 
Maybe I'll have time to give you one brief excerpt from that. Though he avoided persecution under Decius, Scipion was ultimately martyred under Emperor Valerian, who began an intense wave of persecution after the outbreak of a severe plague in the Roman Empire. And you know, the Roman motto, if a natural disaster falls us, where did it come from? It's because of the Christians. The gods are mad at us because of the Christians. Now this plague, which was probably smallpox, it's actually been named after Cyprian today. So if you ever look up Cyprian's plague, that's the plague we're talking about. He wasn't the cause of the plague. He just wrote a very vivid account of it, so it got named after him. I don't know how we feel about that, but that's the way it works. Cyprian, who was known as the Bishop of Carthage after this plague broke out, he was arrested by the Romans, confined to his house, and ultimately beheaded by the sword. Now, Cyprian was a faithful teacher of God's truth, faithful shepherd of the church there in Carthage. He was martyred for his faith in the Lord. I'll just have to give this last point to you in summary fashion. He's notable for dealing with a novationist heresy during his lifetime. Maybe novationist schism is a better way to define it. I mentioned the novationist and Donatist controversies in a previous lesson. What this was, and these are actually in different centuries. The novationists are in the 3rd century, Donatists in the 4th century. What this was is that you had Christians who buckled under persecution and compromised either by offering the sacrifices or getting the sacrifice certificate or handing over the scriptures that the Romans were collecting. But when persecution died down, they wanted to come back into the church. A lot of Christians felt like that's not appropriate. These guys proved to be false brethren. Why are we allowing them back into our fellowship? But others were saying, well, look, they're repentant. Jesus said, forgive why are we not allowing them back into the church? And this, this was a difficult issue. And you can imagine if we were faced with a situation like that, that would not be an easy situation to deal with. But Cyprian, as the bishop, as the, as the leading elder, as the leader of that church in Carthage, he articulated a moderate view. He's trying to shepherd his church with a moderate view. And he says, we do want to allow the compromisers back, but we want to see them demonstrate repentance. So it's not just, hey, no problem, just come on back. But if they demonstrate repentance, let's bring them back. Let's have them as part of the fellowship. Let's not keep away from them. But there was a group that wouldn't accept that. There was a group under a man named Novation who thought that a stricter stance needed to be taken with these lapsed brethren. And he was so much in disagreement with Cyprian's shepherding that he left the church. And he wanted to bring a whole bunch of people with him. They wanted to establish a separate church that would be faithful in all the other ways, but just, no, we're not going to allow any of these compromised Christians back into our fellowship. And Cyprian was very upset about this. He could not tolerate this separatist movement. He saw it as blatantly anti-scriptural, as needlessly fracturing the unity of the church, and he called them to repentance. And that's really what this work on the unity of the church is all about. Now, I have a number of excerpts that you can read through when I send out the slides later, but he wasn't simply arguing, hey, we're the official church, and whatever we say goes, so you better come back. No, he says we do need to contend for the truth, and he was calling them back to the truth first. Our unity is not simply something that we just uh, put everything under the rug and, and not worry about it anymore and just say, hey, we're unified in Jesus. No, it is unity around the truth. Yet he says you can't, uh, when, when the church is standing for the truth, when your leaders are being faithful, you can't just leave when you disagree with something that they say. Why are you going to go against 
the very thing that Jesus called his people to do, which is to be unified around him. Cyprian has a, a famous line, sometimes quoted in a way that's not quite fair by the, the Roman Catholic Church. Let me see if it's this excerpt or the one. Uh, okay. The third one here. He says, He, that is the Christian, cannot have God as father who does not have the church as a mother. If whoever was outside the ark of Noah was able to escape, he too who is outside the church escapes. The Lord warns, saying, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. He who breaks the peace and concord of Christ acts against Christ. He who gathers somewhere outside the church scatters the church of Christ. And I'll read one more thing real quick. The Lord says, I and the Father are one. And again, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is written, and these three are one. Does anyone believe that this unity, which comes from divine strength, which is closely connected with the divine sacraments, can be broken asunder in the church and be separated by the divisions of colliding wills? He who does not hold this unity does not hold the law of God, does not hold the faith of the Father and the Son, does not hold life and salvation. That's a pretty strong assertion. And maybe we're a little bit uncomfortable with it because of the situation of denominations in the church today. We say, well, it's totally normal to separate. Yeah, you don't like the church? Let's go to a different church. Well, a little different at that time. Remember, there aren't that many churches in, one, in a city. There's usually just one main church. And if that church is being faithful, but you say, I don't quite agree with that decision they made on that particular issue, it's a big deal to say, well, I'm just not going to be part of the church. I'm not going to fellowship with those believers anymore. I'm going to go separate and have my own thing. Cyprian would argue, and I think there's a lot of scriptural truth behind this, that that is needlessly fracturing the church of God. There's so many exhortations in the Bible towards unity. That's the main thing that Jesus prays for in John 17 when he's praying for the apostles and those who would believe in their word. He says, let them be one. Let them be one even as we are one. And Cyprian quotes that. He says... If you don't care about the unity of the church, if you're not striving for the unity of the church, and you just say, I'm just going to separate. You know what Cyprian would say? You're not even a Christian. Because that's not what Christians are all about. Now again, as Mark brought out last week, and as the Reformers uh, argued also, there is a difference between needlessly causing schism and standing for the truth when the leaders have departed from it, departed from the gospel. There's that even scripture that Mark brought out about um, it's not good to have divisions, but it is necessary that there would be factions so that those who are approved would be made manifest. So it's not that there's never a reason to separate, but if we are not striving for the unity of the church and are we are uh, too quick to separate, not only do we harm ourselves, not only do we harm the church, but we go directly against what God commanded us to do, what our Lord commanded us to do. Uh, I, um, one verse I'm often thinking about these days is Proverbs 18.1. I've quoted it in a number of contexts recently, but I bring it to your attention too. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Do you find yourself just separating from the church either individually or just saying, I want to separate and, and find found my own church? You better really check your motives because it might just be you have certain desires that are not actually scriptural, but just say, I want to I get my own desires fulfilled rather than fulfill the desires of my Lord. Much more we could say about that issue, but Cyprian, Cyprian certainly is notable for his legacy in 
reminding us of the need of the church and the people in the church to be united around the truth. Now, like I said, we have one more polemical father to discuss, the brilliant but quite controversial Origen. We'll get to him next time, and we'll talk about some other fathers in the 4th century. That's it for today. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for these faithful men, teachers in the past. Lord, help us to be faithful as they were faithful, to learn from their mistakes. Lord, keep us in your truth and keep us united. Help us to know what is really an issue worth separating over, contending for. What's something to say, you know, I don't quite agree with that, but I'm going to submit because that's not, that's not a key issue. Lord, we know that we should strive for the unity, and we know that that often includes serving with our gifts. Pray that that would happen at this local body. Protect and build up your church, just as you have been doing throughout the centuries, our great God. Amen. Thank you.